Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of The Populist. This is Kevin O'Hare. In this episode, I want to build on what we talked about in episode five, which was talking about defining democracy. And for that podcast, I interviewed Professor Craig Kaufman, and we went through a little bit of the history in democracy and defining it, as well as the different definitions, Okay, which that ended up being a little bit trickier than I think most people um, generally realize. But in this episode, in episode six, I want to talk about transitions to democracy, democratic consolidation, and democratization, so theories of democratization. So that's kind of the way that this podcast is going to be outlined. Is I'll, First, I'll go through some history and patterns of democratization, and then I will talk about democratic transitions, and then I will talk about democratic consolidation. And then finally get into the theories of democratization. Okay, so so to start off, um, it's it's worth noting that throughout history, most forms of government, so most regimes, so the regime type, we're simply talking about the type of government there. Are you an authoritarian regime? Are you a democratic regime? Um, but that's not necessarily the government itself. Okay, so when the Iraq war was going on, we were talking about regime change. We were talking about, um, or President Bush was talking about removing Saddam Hussein and removing that authoritarian dictatorial regime and inputting democracy. Okay, so the regime is the broader classification of what type of government you have, the government itself is going to be um, like the Bush administration, the Obama administration, okay? Or if it's a parliamentary system, it could just be, you know, the, the British government, all right? So that's a, a, a distinction that, that I want to make. But Getting back to the point, authoritarianism has really been the dominant form of government through most of history. Okay? So, I mean, broadly, kind of what we see is is we have some democracies going up to the 1920s, um, but really after World War II is when we, we see um, some democracies come about, some more, and then... Since the late 1970s, there's been a dramatic decline in authoritarian regimes and a huge increase in democracies. Okay, so today, uh, about half of the countries in the world are democratic based on the minimalist definition. But if we look at this, democracy is not just happening in random places, okay? It's clustered both geographically and temporally, so in time, all right? And... If we want to look at these, if we want to look at these patterns, um, we have to consider the historical development of democracy. Okay, so the history of democracy, as we talked about last episode, it goes way back to to Athens, Greece. We're talking, you know, classical times. We're talking um, ancient times. All right, but in Athens, I mean, only landed men could vote, so only men who owned property could vote. Um, and, you know, and then it goes on to, to Rome and there's was more of a Republic style, um, as opposed to a direct democracy. 
Um, and then later on, we start to see the United States and France and England start to experiment with these ideas again, you know, starting in the 1700s. All right. And under these systems, what we really saw was limited suffrage. So not everybody could vote, limited accountability. Um, Outside of the U.S., there was still a monarchy. All right. And then so we move into the 19th century, so the 1800s, and we see more this emergence of liberalism. So we have more of an emphasis on individual liberties, on economic liberties, um, the role of the market, laissez-faire economics. Um, It wasn't so much about expanding suffrage. You know, it wasn't about um, giving people the right to vote, but it was more about individual freedom. Okay, political liberties, civil rights, uh, the ability to participate, but not necessarily vote. And this is an important precursor to modern democracy because, as we talked about in the last episode, it starts to to bring up these, these different elements of democracy that aren't necessarily associated with it in the classical definition or even in the minimalist def- definition or the procedural definition. Okay, so, so these are important precursors. And then, so Samuel Huntington kind of recognized that democracy comes in waves, all right, waves being like clusters. So the first wave of democracy, when we see a bunch of countries uh, becoming democracies, is roughly like 1826 to 1926 when we see 33 countries become democracies. Now, he also noticed that when countries become democracies, there tends to be just like a wave. It rushes in on the shore and then it goes back out to sea. Okay. So he called this a reverse wave. All right. So from 1922 to 1942, we see 22 countries that were democracies, you know, they go on this reverse wave and, you know, become non-democracies. All right. And then we see a second wave. approximately 1943 to 1962, and there's about 41 countries that become democracies. And then we see a reverse wave that started somewhere in the late 50s, 1958 or so, and this lasts through 1975, where 22 countries that were democracies pull back and, and were no longer democracies. All right, and then the third wave, which was... 1974 through the 1990s, approximately, uh, we see a bunch of these developing countries becoming democratic. Okay, and then the reverse wave has really been estimated to be from the 2000s to the present. All right, and this resulted in what became uh, or what have become known as hybrid regimes, which we'll talk more about in week eight when we get to authoritarian regimes. Uh, but in essence, it's it's really just a shell of democracy. It might have some institutions that, uh, that look democratic. People technically might be able to vote, but it might not be fair in really contested elections. So it's, it's a shell of democracy, but not its, its substance, not its, its inner guts. All right. And as I said, when we get to week eight and we talk about authoritarian regimes, we'll get really deep into the weeds on this. Okay, so that's kind of the the overview of the trends that we've seen in in the world. 
And um, I mean, maybe maybe I should clarify, like the first wave, you're seeing a lot of places, say, it, like you see the United States and you see places in Europe. Um, and then the reverse wave comes. I mean, you have World War Two and the Depression, Hitler, um, you know, and then you get second wave. Third wave tended to be more of your developing countries, Latin America, places in Africa, things like that. Okay, so moving on to democratic transitions. So when we talk about democratic transitions, what we're referring to is the process through which a non-democratic regime becomes democratic. Okay? So in this, the time frame can vary. All right? And um, sometimes it can happen very quickly, as we saw in places like the Philippines. Or it can be this long, slow transition that's just drawn out over years. And examples of this would be Brazil, Mexico, Poland, um, where it just it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen within a matter of months. It takes years for this transition to actually take place. Okay, and also if we look at what causes this and how this impacts politics, um, these will also vary. So, so one way that you can get these transitions is what's called a pacted transition. So these are negotiated and controlled by outgoing authoritarians. And two of the best examples of this are Brazil and Chile. Okay, here the military's built-in advantages to make sure their policies and preferences would continue to influence politics moving forward. All right, but but in these, it was the elites that really negotiated how this transition would happen. It wasn't like the old military um, military authoritarian regimes just fell apart. It was negotiated or pacted between the elites, and that allowed the old regime to, to give way to a democratic regime, but without a complete collapse of society. Okay, so and then the other way that this can happen is that it can come about from the collapse of previous structures, and it happens in more of a revolutionary way. Um, think of the the French Revolution. Okay, Sherry Berman talks about about this, and actually she's talking more about democratic consolidation, but but the way that France transitioned, it was quicker. You saw the French Revolution, and you saw just the upending of society and the change a lot of change really quick okay so it was the the former structures the aristocracy and the nobility it was complete the tables were completely turned really really fast and then another example would be the philippines okay so the transitions can really happen in these two ways they can happen slowly um you know drawn out over over a number of years um they can happen where the um, the previous regime and the elites in the previous regime negotiate how the transition is going to go, or it can be more revolution style, okay, happening not literally overnight, but you know, happening very very quickly, okay. And this this brings us to the next key concept to really think about, which is democratic consolidation, okay, which is really different from the transition. So the transition 
is initiating this process. It's the move from one form, one regime to another. Okay, but consolidation is the process through which, after a transition from authoritarianism, a polity strengthens its democracy. Okay, or to be more specific, this is a longer process. This is where democracy and its institutions and norms and just the the habitual ways of being, you know, all of these things become regularized. They become habit for the citizens. And um, democracy is just kind of the way things are and people accept it. All right, Linz and Stefan, this is dis- discussed in your, your textbook, but they've got this, the famous saying that when democracy is the only game in town, okay, you're only playing baseball. There is no football. There is no soccer. There is no basketball. Only football, or only baseball, sorry. Um, only democracy. Dictatorship's not an option. Authoritarian regimes, not an option. Monarchy, not an option. Okay, Um, so no alternatives really being considered by the population. All right. And and going back to the Sherry Berman uh, article I was referencing earlier that is part of your reading this week, um, you know, she argues that democracy is ugly. It's hard, bloody. It's not this nice linear path where you go from point A to point B to point C and all the way and and eventually you get to to the destination of yay democracy okay no it's hard it takes time uh there takes effort it takes conflict and struggle i mean think about um the france's uh experience with democracy where they have the revolution, they're going to change everything, and then a few years later, Napoleon is in power. Okay, think about Germany and the Weimar Republic, and then we get Hitler. Okay, now both of these places went through those really dark periods of their time, or those really dark periods in their history, but now are our democracies. Okay, so going with this Sherry Berman says this, it just, it's going to take time. It's going to be hard. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be struggle. A lot of times you're going to take two steps forward and one step back. But eventually these uh, democracies become consolidated and become institutionalized. Okay. Um, another way that the consolidation of democracy has been described by scholars as Samuel Huntington defined it simply as two turnovers in power. Um, so if, if you're thinking there's, there's three political parties, you got political party A, B and C and in the first election, political, political party A wins. Okay. Then there's another election and political party C wins. Well, there's one turnover in power. So then a few years later, there's another election and, political party B wins or political party A wins. As long as there's a peaceful transition of power, a lot of people would say, okay, it's consolidated. Um, And there's obviously disagreement about this because that's significantly different than what Sherry Berman is arguing. Okay. But democratic consolidation, you know, think of it as simply, this is the only game we're playing. All right. We are only playing democracy. And when, a country gets to that point, then it's considered consolidated. Okay, so now we are going to move on to what causes democratization. 
All right, and in this, we're going to talk about modernization theory, cultural theories, systemic or structural theories, domestic institutional theories, and agency-based theories. All right, and we're going to start with modernization theory because it's one of the most influential in all of these theories. Okay, this is also why there's an extra article um, in your reading talking about what, what we know about modernization theory thus far. Okay, so modernization theory focuses on the relationship between economic development and democracy. And this kind of came about because when we looked around and we said, okay, what countries are democratic? They all tended to be the rich countries. Okay? They were your England's or Britain's. They were the United States. They were France. Okay? So these countries that had a lot of money tended to be democratic. All right? And economic wealth correlates with democracy. And then we see this over and over. So now, how this happens is described as largely because because a rich country allows a middle class to emerge. All right? So economic and social sophistication leads to the public developing, quote-unquote, the correct values for democracy. Um, And in this process... Okay, so, so, so let me back up. If you, if you go through this process of industrialization and modernization, okay, so you industrialize, and through that, we see urbanization. We see higher levels of education and literacy, all right? And this leads to the rise of the middle class, all right? You have people moving to cities, and what this meant is that your former lords and former peasants are now business owners and workers. All right. So as this happens and people um, gain more control over their own lives, they also tend to want more of a say in what's going on within the state. Okay. They demand more of a political say, but they're also not looking for revolution. All right. They're not looking to flip the game board over and play something else. They're just saying, we want more of a say in in what happens. All right? And that's the basic argument of of what happens in modernization theory. Okay? So you industrialize, you modernize, and this leads to urbanization, higher levels of education, and people moving into cities, and they start demanding – more control over what the state does. All right. Now, along with modernization, along with the modernization theory is that modernization may actually help prevent democratic breakdown. Okay. So economic development can support democracy, even if it's not directly the cause of democracy. All right. Democracies are tend to be more stable and secure when they're relatively wealthy. Um, and this, this makes sense because if people aren't starving and have places to live and have jobs, they're less likely to be upset with the status quo. Now, an interesting finding that has started to come out is that maybe wealth correlates with regime stability across the board. Look at a place like Singapore. They're an authoritarian regime, but they're very wealthy. They have very little social unrest. Um, for a long time, people pointed to Saudi Arabia 
very wealthy. A lot of it comes from oil. Um, but they've got a rest of population as long as things are comfortable for them. Okay, and if you look at the poorer countries, they tend to lack the stabilizing force that the middle class provides. Okay, because these, remember, I mean, they're not looking, the middle class generally doesn't, they're not interested in revolution. Okay, they tend to be more moderate politically. All right, so in these poorer countries that, that lack this middle class, the way that society tends to be structured is you've got a small wealthy elite at the top. And then you've got the impoverished masses below, which are obviously significantly more in the impoverished masses than the small wealthy elite. Okay, and this tends to be more prone to authoritarianism. It's dominated by the elite and politics is exclusive. Not everybody gets to participate. Um, Only a very, very small few get to participate. All right, so then what ends up happening is you get revolutionary mobs trying to seize power from the elite. And neither group is interested in sharing power. So then the economically modernized societies with a middle class tends to balance these out. Like I said, they're, they tend to be more moderate. They're in the middle. Okay, they're not looking for revolution. They're not looking to be part of the political elite to oppress the masses. All right, Um so when you get these, this, this is kind of why people are really worried about the shrinking middle class today and the amount of wealth disparity that you see in many countries, I mean, especially the United States, it's really high, um, is that if you erode this middle class, then what is the stabilizing force? You know, where do the moderate voices in politics come from? Okay, so the argument is that Poorer countries lack the stabilizing force that the middle class provides. Now, there are exceptions to this for sure. All right, and the best exception to modernization theory is India because it, a lot of its economic wealth came after it was already a democracy. So it democratized before modernizing. All right, so the, the question that this leaves is, is what is the causal connection between modernization and democracy? Do, does modernization lead to democracy? Can democracy lead to modernization, as appears to be the case in India? This is not always clear. All right, and as, we've, as I've said it in many other podcasts, and the book reiterates over and over again, one theory is not going to explain everything. Okay, a lot of times it's going to take multiple theories if you're really looking to to explain how something operates. Okay, so the next theory to talk about is the role of culture in democratization. Okay, and the argument here is that the norms and attitudes will support democracy in some places. All right, and that different regions or countries have distinct cultures regarding power, authority, and rights. And maybe the the best example of this is the quote unquote Asian values versus quote unquote Western values. And and here people have tried to argue that Asian cultures value stability and harmonious social relations over individual rights, and that. People are comfortable with respect for authority and deference to the state. And what this means is that that democracy is not a priority. 
The priorities tend to be order, hard work, and social progress. Okay, and you flip that over to Western values, individualism, um, getting ahead, you know, uh, working up the social ladder, things like that tend to be associated with more Western values. But it's also, um, you know, we limit the state. Okay, state intervention is considered not as um, not as universally good as it might be in in Asian cultures. At least this is the argument. Okay, and and what we see is some authoritarian political leaders in Asia may even play up this kind of thinking to try and get their citizens to believe it, and it's pretty self-serving because deference to power, order. Hard work, yes, that's what we are. Well, it also keeps them in power. Okay, um, so it, it's pretty self-serving. Now, the, the real problem we get into with with cultural arguments is that culture isn't static. I mean, just look here in in the United States and how much things have changed in the last ten years. Okay. Um, so culture is dynamic and it's constantly changing. So this really makes it hard to argue that um, places in Africa or South America are not democratic because of a fixed cultural element that doesn't change, something that's constant through time when we see that culture varies and culture changes. Okay? And there's just not many political scientists that would argue that Africa is not democratic because its people don't want democracy or because they belong to tribes. I mean, not only is this a borderline racist argument to assume that Africans are less capable of sophisticated political calculation, but their conception of culture is way too thin. All right, culture is this deep and rich um, concept and this deep and rich thing that is not simple to even define, and it's constantly changing. So this, if somebody was to make that argument, their their definition of culture is is way too thin, and it's assuming that it's static and fixed. And as I've been saying, it's dynamic and changing all the time. It's always being shaped and reshaped. And if you're going to make a good cultural argument, you have to take into account that culture is going to change through time. It's not going to be static because we know that it's not static. All right, go and watch, um, you know, TV shows from the 1990s and compared to today and kind of the, the issues that they talk about and what's accepted. Some people have been appalled at watching Friends and some of the, the things that have said, but in the 90s it was completely acceptable and considered normal. So culture is not the static thing. It, it changes and that kind of that makes the culture and democracy arguments difficult especially on their own. You need to take into account that it's always changing. So our next theory for explaining democratization concerns the international systems and looks at how global politics can affect regime types. And this theory is saying that the major powers of the world can affect the chances for democracy in smaller countries. Okay, so so let's 
compare two different eras. You've got the Cold War, which is 1945 to 1989, and then you've got the post-Cold War, what some people call the era of democratic peace, 1989 to 2001. In the Cold War, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union wanted client states, all right? They wanted allies. They wanted countries that were, for the U.S., you wanted um, countries that more than anything were capitalistic, okay? And the Soviet Union wanted communist countries. They wanted their countries to be communist and supported them. So, So you can think... Eastern and Central Europe, as well as numerous dictatorships supported by both sides. All right, during this era, security was valued over democracy. All right, and as the Cold War came to an end and the Soviet Union collapsed, what happened is that democracy prevailed as an international norm. All right. It was the proper thing to do was to be a democracy. All right. Because the Soviet Union and communist ideas and communist forms of government and control over people's lives became discredited. All right. So these democratic ideas were transmitted and propagated around the world. All right. And Huntington points out, I think this is in a a blurb in your book, he points out how countries learned from each other. Okay, they also see how states how how states are democratizing and they think, well, we can do that, too. All right. And so this helped democracy spread globally after the Cold War ended. And this once the Cold War ended, it led to this increased optimism about democracy spreading around the world. And most famously, Francis Fukuyama wrote a piece called The End of History. All right, and it wasn't talking about history is over and there's not going to be any more conflict or anything worth writing down. His argument was that the world was converging on a universalization of Western liberal democracy as this final form of human government. There were no more ideological battles between communism or fascism and liberal democracy and capitalism. Liberal democracy and capitalism had won. And this is where everybody was going to go. Now, this this projection was very premature. It has not been validated if we just look around the world today. And, you know, it will never be validated. I don't think there's ever one form of government that is going to, to prevail over the rest. Okay, there's too many factors going into it. Okay, but if we look at it... Um, in these different eras, you know, we in the United States, the U.S. government supported regimes that are obviously not democratic, but they did so for security reasons. Once the security threat was gone, then democracy became more, more of a prominent goal of foreign policy. Okay, and then we start to see this next big wave of democracies coming about. All right, and even today, democracy is not necessarily always supported, but most of the time it is. Okay, we may not be, you know, a good example is the United States. They still support places like Saudi Arabia. Okay, that is a strategic interest because of the oil. Okay, but there are other places that we push, we, meaning the United States, push for 
regime change, like in Iraq. Okay, um, so it's not always supported today, but oftentimes it is. All right, and we get a lot of added support from many of the democracies in Europe as well. So that brings us to the next theory, which involves domestic institutions. And this is, is arguing that the design of institutions shape whether democracies will survive or fail. And what we mean by this is, you know, are you creating a federalist constitution or are you a unitary constitution or a federalist state, unitary state? Are you presidential? Are you parliamentary? Do you have judicial review and a Supreme Court type judicial branch of the government or do you not? Okay. And the comparison the book uses is the U.S. Constitution versus the Articles of Confederation that preceded it. And the Articles of Confederation gave way too much power to the states. And it actually created incentives to break the Union apart. And it was replaced by the U.S. Constitution, which was much more institutionally sound. It created incentives for these state governments to work together and allowed the United States to be a more stable democracy. Okay. Um, And other... You know, there's there's this debate of whether or not you can engineer democracy by creating proper institutions. Okay, like um, some people say that you may be able to secure democracy in a place like Iraq if you can just put the proper institutions in place. Okay, Um, another potential institution that that could make a big difference is electoral rules. All right. And how how elections are carried out. And this stuff is going to be hit on in great detail when we talk about these institutions in the next two weeks after this. Okay, Uh, but electoral rules. Are you going with a first past the post system where the person first person to get the majority votes wins? Are you going with a proportional system? Um, And an example of how this broke down, if if we look at Chile in 1970, their president was elected with less than 40 percent support. Okay, and. Only a few years later, their democracy was overthrown in a military coup. Okay, so so it can lead to legitimacy issues if things like that happen, like your electoral rules make it to where somebody can win with significantly less support than what people believe that it uh, that it should be, or the way that the constitution or the institutions are set up. Okay, so that is another argument. And as I said, we'll get even more in depth with this in the next two weeks when we talk specifically about all of these different institutions and the different ways that democratic states can be organized. All right. So the last of these theories focuses on agents and actors. So the individual, all right, or the, or groups, I guess it's individuals and groups. Um, and, here, the, the argument is that coalitions of specific groups um, can lead to some transitions to democracy, or that individuals um, 
democratization is often a story with prominent leaders as kind of the figureheads or they're the ones pushing it forward. All right, examples could be Gandhi and Nehru in India, Mandela in South America, or the founding fathers here in the United States. You know, a lot of times that, um, that we see these stories is, you know, we see the, it trying to explain one case. All right. So I guess that is one of the downsides to using this agents and actors theory is that, yes, you can focus on the nitty gritty of what happened in South Africa and focus on Mandela. But how does that transfer to other cases? All right. Does it allow us to make these broader generalizations about how democracy happens? Okay, and as I said earlier, this this can be individuals or this can be certain groups. So if you check out the insights box on page 141 of your textbook, it's got O'Donnell, Schmitter, and Whitehead's, um, their piece on transitions. And they say basically, um, they they did a lot of work in um, South America. And they say these pacted transitions that I mentioned earlier, you can have four groups. You've got hardliners from the old regime, softliners from the old regime. So the hardliners are not really willing to negotiate with the public or the other influential groups that are pushing for democracy. So you've got the hardliners and softliners on one side associated with the old regime. Then on the other side, you've got what they refer to as pragmatists and radicals. So the radicals don't want to negotiate with the old regime at all. They're ready to flip the game board over, just burn the whole thing down. Okay, and then but the pragmatists are, as their name suggests, they're more pragmatic. They're more in the middle. So on the edges, if you can imagine this, all the way to one side you've got the hardliners, and all the way to the other side you got the radicals. Um, if you can kind of cut them out somehow and get the um, softliners and the pragmatists in the middle to talk, then you can get a transition to happen more smoothly, or that's when it happens more smoothly because they're willing to talk and negotiate with each other. All right, they're not ready to flip the game board over. All right, and and so in this process of democratization, you can also have other groups, not just people from the old regime or revolutionary forces. I mean, it can it can be things like uh, trade or labor unions, so like business groups, um, you know, other, uh, other groups in civil society. I mean, I've used the example of like the Elks Club and the Kiwanis Club, these civil society groups, the media, places, these different groups. If you can get coalitions of them that are moderate to come together, all right, you get these coalitions of moderate groups. It can lead to some transitions. All right, and and so in in finishing this up, I want to reiterate this this point that you know you're not going to be able to to take one of these theories and say this explains everything. All right, and at the end of the chapter in your book. Um, it, it really hits on this thing saying that you need to combine arguments and theories, all right, that no one theory is going to explain it. You can combine different features, and they use the example of modernization theory as, as 
combining both modernization theory with the cultural theory. All right, and I, I talked about this earlier, but didn't specifically highlight it. But if modernization leads to changing cultural values and that leads to democracy, then you're not just making a modernization theory argument because there's the cultural bit in there. Okay, so if modernization leads to these cultural changes and you get democracy, you've just combined two of these theories to uh, to actually make your argument. It's a lot like I was saying a few weeks ago or a couple weeks ago when um, talking about Landis's argument for the rise of Europe. Okay, he hit on institutions and the rule of law and private property, but he also had the cultural element in there as well. Okay, so he was he was using an institutional with a cultural argument. Just like here, Engelhart and Wellsel, modernization theory with culture leading to democracy. So, so it, it's interesting. You're going to want to think about how these different theories might come together. All right, and think about this in the context of the cases that you're reading for this week. Okay, so I think that about wraps it up for episode six. Please make sure that you are keeping up on the reading that you're doing the quizzes. Um, remember, this is so. This is week five. So the first five weeks of the quizzes are due by the end of the week, actually by Sunday. And then during week six, quizzes six through ten will then become available. Um, but yeah, keep up on it and keep listening to these and sending me questions and comments stay up on the discussions and i would even recommend looking forward to your writing assignment so there's three weeks worth of stuff and as you're going through this kind of keep that in mind i'll it'll be easier to get a little bit more specific as we talk about the institutions but you know keep that in mind as you're going through the material and as you're moving forward So until next time, have a good one.